Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. No one knows what to say about writer and advice columnist E. Jean Carroll. It's been almost two months since she stood resolute on the cover of New York Magazine and leveled the most detailed and damning accusation of sexual assault yet against President Donald Trump. Since then, she's told her story many times, and not one detail has changed. In fact, her allegations have been publicly corroborated. E. Jean has answered every question directed at her, even the offensive ones. Yet few seem willing to listen or take her seriously. And that, in essence, is her point. In her new book, What Do We Need Men For?, E. Jean lists the 21 so-called, quote, hideous men she's encountered in her 75 years, beginning with the babysitter who molested her. Her list goes all the way up to the highest echelons of media. What's striking, if not surprising, is how relatable her stories are. It's a sad fact and a sobering truth that so many of us have encountered some type of abuse, coercion, assault, or misconduct. Nothing about this book is remotely hard to believe. And over the last two years, we've heard countless similar stories from the women who gave rise to the Me Too movement. We've listened to them, affirming the importance of believing women. So why is this particular woman treated like a suspect? For one thing, E. Jean doesn't fit the mold, nor does she follow a script. She's been an offbeat and outspoken figure since her early days as a journalist in the heady scene of 1980s New York media. But ageism is an obvious factor, too. Imagine if E. Jean had told this story at 25 instead of 75. Would she be met with more support? Unlikely, according to E. Jean herself. She argues we've grown accustomed to not only forgiving abusive men in power, but rewarding them. In coming forward now, she's taking on the huge and thankless job of confronting that system from the top down. And no matter what you think about her, E. Jean Carroll is still standing. She's still speaking. And this time, she's demanding that she'll be heard. Jean Carroll, it is such a pleasure and an honor to have you on Unstyled today. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, I'm just delighted. Thank you. I'm blown away by your new memoir. And the memoir is called What Do We Need Men For? A Modest Proposal. And it came out a month and a half ago. But before we get into the book and the really historic New York Magazine cover story, which featured your excerpt, I'd love to just talk about your career as a writer because... I've followed you for many, many years through your advice column for Elle magazine, and no one has had a column like you. And I can remember just your voice. And I had this feeling, and I'm not sure if this is true, but that you weren't edited very much. (laughs) I don't think you were edited very much. And I think that there was always this sort of very palpable 
passion in your answering these very vulnerable, very emotional, very difficult situations that readers found themselves in. And you could really tell that you were in it with them. I love my correspondents. I love them. You can tell. You can tell. It was true that you really cared about and worried about them. I still worry about them. Who do you worry about? I worry about women who have accepted marriage proposals when I know it's not the right thing to do because they've sent me a letter and listed everything they don't like about him, and then it comes to the end of the letter, but I've decided to get married because he's got a really good job. He's making $400,000 a year. I worry about the woman whose boyfriend is beating her dog and she's frightened to leave him. That woman I worry about constantly. Think how frightened she is, and she loves her dog. He's beating her dog, and she can't find the gumption to walk out. I'd love to run him over with my car. Oh, great. We'll go together. Okay, good. Fine. That's good. I really understand that feeling of empathizing with people that are going through things and honestly sometimes need to reach out to someone who doesn't know them. How would you try to convince her Mm -hmm. she knows he's a bad guy? How would you convince her to walk out? And go to her sisters. Her sister's in the army. She had a good place to go. How would you convince her? I think those kinds of situations where, and we've all been in situations like that in different circumstances where we've known that we were in a situation that wasn't good for us. But for whatever reason, we've convinced ourselves Mm. that it's a place that we need to be because there is something that we need to complete And I've actually done that with jobs before. Um, I think it was one of the reasons why I really wanted to start my own company because I felt like I was constantly putting myself, even if it was unconsciously or subconsciously, in these situations where I was limited in terms of what I could actually create. You're not limited now. (laughs) But anyway, I would ask her why she felt like that was the best scenario she could in right now because I think sometimes it's really Mm. really hard I think that saying the devil you know is better Mm. than the devil you don't Mm. know I think the fear of the unknown is so much more frightening for a lot of people and I would include myself Mm. in that Mm. that change becomes paralyzing the Mm. idea that you are going to actually put yourself in a worse situation like maybe he would then come after her and hurt her or or kill the dog or the family. Or kill the dog, right. Try and actually document or at least get at the heart of the things that are really keeping her up at night about the whole situation. But I want to talk about your career as a journalist and as an investigative reporter. What are some of your principles about reporting and about going after a story? Why do you love it so much and why do you think you're so good at it? I feel like I'm more alive. I feel like I'm living in another atmosphere. I'm just thrilled. And what happens when I meet the person, I fall in love with the person I'm talking to, right? And this love affair can be 40 seconds. It can be three days. But it's this constant falling in love, and I just love them so much. And then everything falling apart when I start to write it. Because, you know, I can't get that love down on paper. I try to get what everything looked like. And so I've overcome that because now guess what I do? I just video everything. What do you mean? Instead of tape recording people mm-hmm. or writing notes, I just oh, now just shoot put video. put back in that moment. So then I can see how they smiled, how their teeth glistened, what their fingernails look like, the twinkle. In the, I can see it all now. Oh, I always say, can I just video this? Nobody's ever said no. We're all used to people 
pulling out their iPhones and starting to shoot. Wow. You would think they'd say no, but no. They say yes, and they get even smarter mm-hmm. and brighter and more engaging yeah. because I'm putting them on video. Wow. That's a really incredible development and also realization in your own career yeah. to be able to do that, but also to give you a chance to start to write at a new yeah. level. How early did you recognize that that was what you wanted to do? Uh, early. Uh, it was. I remember the day. I was around 11 and a half. My father came home. He's a businessman in Fort Wayne. He comes home waving a magazine over his head, and he said, Time Magazine ran my letter in the letters column. Neighbors came to our house to look at. Famous. He was famous. He was famous up and down the street. The Junior Chamber of Commerce, it was like such a big deal. I thought, oh, mm mm-hmm, this is good. I like this. Yeah. Just So I sent off my first um, pitch to Sears and Roebuck. I mean, I miss the Sears, the Sears <laughs> yeah, catalog. The catalog. So, what did you send them? I said I have a story about a about a girl my age who gets a Sears catalog and cuts out all the clothes and everything she cut out turns into a real dress. Wow, that really is the wish book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. It's, For those it's people all... who don't know, there's a lot of people that don't know. The Sears <laughs> wish book was a catalog that Sears and Roebuck put out every year, and it had everything. From like Everything. kids' toys, the to lawn furniture, to washing machines, to house plans, to clothes, to really yeah, good yeah. clothes. And boys, that's how they learn what women look like without their clothes, because they ran all those girdle ads and all those bra ads and those oh my panty God, ads. This is in the 30s, kid. Yeah. 30s, 40s, 50s, wow. and that's what you had in the outhouses for toilet paper. You'd pull off a page of the Sears and Roebuck catalog. And you've written about everything in the years leading up to your famous, um, infamous, I should say, advice column for Elle magazine. You covered cheerleaders. You've covered organized crime. You've covered the porn industry. There's so many things that you've written about, like for places like Esquire magazine. And I just want to say that one of the stories I wasn't aware of came out before my time, but you taking Fran Lebowitz <laughs> camping. camping, but she's actually one of my favorite <laughs> oh, essayists in the world and still is. Do you remember the series she did for Vanity Fair? Yes. And she did a series of like on aging. How did you come about doing that piece on Fran Lebowitz? I had seen a picture of Fran in Vogue mm-hmm. lying on her bed talking. And smoking. Smoking and talking. I've never not seen her smoking. And, of course, I had read uh, her first book. So I had read her first book, Metropolitan Life. There's Fran on the bed. I couldn't help myself. I got her number, right? So I was very wily because I had already made the big time by having my first piece published in Esquire. So I had my size 11 and a half shoe in the door. So I knew better than... I shouldn't call Fran because Fran was such a big... She was a goddess. I knew not to call her. I called her agent, Mort Janklo. Oh, he was really famous. He was oh, my still alive. God. Yes! There's a sidewalk shake in New York when you say that name, Mort Janklo. Mm-hmm. So I called him on the phone and asked him if I could take Fran Lebowitz camping. The man didn't stop laughing because he said at the end, how much are you going to pay her? I said, oh, no, no, Mr. Mort, this is for a magazine, outside magazine. He said, no, Fran Lewis never goes outside. 
Fran? Let alone camping. Let alone camping. And it's true. She's had some great quotes. The sun is that kind of overhead lighting that makes a smoker look so mm-hmm. pale. So then I called her using the number I'd gotten out of Vogue. After I get the big no from Mort, you know, Mort is having none of it. And he scared me to death by saying she'll never go outside. And I called her on the phone. I said, hello, Miss Leibowitz. Let's go outside. Let's go outside your apartment. Let's go camping. People are going to love it. It's going to be a riot. And she said, who is this? And it was on the cover, wasn't it? Yeah. It was on the cover of Outside Magazine. It was Fran in her camel hair coat and her sweater. Remember her crew neck sweaters Mm -hmm. and her shirt and her jeans and her loafers and her Louis Vuitton suitcase sitting in a tent. It was fabulous. You really did go camping. We put up a tent after we did dinner. She raised her hand and said, check, please. Oh, really? By the fire. And then we... Every word that came out of her mouth was hilarious. She's just so witty. She's incredibly witty. She's sharp. She's so smart. She was recently on um, on Bill Maher. And, I saw um, her. Yeah, yeah, the final performance of the year, right? Wasn't that good? So good. Do you agree with her about Donald Trump, though, when she said everybody in New York hates him? We used to like him in New York in the 80s and 90s. Fran just forgot. And just for everyone that's listening, we just want to make sure that you know that we'll be talking about some sensitive information about sexual assault and sexual violence. If if that is concerning to you, we just want to let you know and just to make you aware. Something that you've done in this book, profiling 21 hideous men in your life and in your history, something that you've done is you've really, you've really shown us, I think it was hard to see before, even though it's always been true, but how prolific assault like this is mm. for women, every shape and form, every situation, every kind of association with different kinds of people in your life, women are Mm. met with this confrontation, this kind of challenge. And so many women don't talk about it. Seeing you on the cover of of New York Magazine was so thrilling. That must have felt good. No, it was... I didn't know it was going to be on the cover. When you saw it it on newsstands, uh, you didn't feel good. Well, Amanda Deming was the photographer, so I had an inkling. And then... During the shoot, the art director of New York Magazine came down and he said to me, you know, this is a cover. And I put my hands over my ears. I said, please don't tell me that. Well, I, how did it feel? Well, it felt, it felt fabulous. <laughs> it felt absolutely fabulous. This was Jody's idea, who's the great photography editor at, at New York. She called me one day and said, do you still have the dress that you talked about in the book? I said, yes, it's hanging right in my closet behind my raincoats. She said, do you still fit into it? I said, yes, it's, you know. And so she said, can you send me a picture? So I hung it up on the wall and Mm -hmm. sent her a picture. The great Jody Kwan I'm talking about. Everyone Mm -hmm. in New York worships her. And she said, okay. Then she said, do you have the shoes? I said, yes, I have the shoes. Only Jody Kwan would think of the shoes. Yeah, so... 
sent her a picture of the shoes, and that was it. I think it's a historic cover. It really is. And I think the story that you tell is so frightening and awful, not least of all because it was your experience, but because it happened with the president. And there's a lot that I would love to hear from you about that experience. You have a Kleenex in your hand. Yeah, I do. Because this is an upsetting conversation. You know know what's upsetting about it, I'll tell you, is helping to lead a company that is really by and for young women and really starting to hear more and more stories. I think the Me Too movement has really given permission to so many women to just acknowledge their own histories, their Mm. own traumatic events that have happened in their lives and to feel seen and heard and to feel as though they do have a responsibility to share those stories if they want to. And among my friend circle, we were all talking Mm. about the the cover story. My husband read it. I mean, Mm. I think that it really struck a very, very powerful chord with so many people. But do you mind just telling us a little, if you wouldn't mind summarizing the story yourself, I think that would be really helpful for listeners to hear. It helps me too. And the odd part is, I am of the silent generation. We do not talk. You say that in the book. We do not talk. Women my age, and there was just a piece yesterday in the New York Times about angry women who are older. We were taught to swallow. Laugh it off. And laugh it off. That is what God forbid you would make anyone else feel uncomfortable in those situations where you felt you wanted to disappear. Exactly. We were so quiet. My sister, Candy, has a similar list to mine, and we've never talked about it. I think you'll probably find that there's a lot of My women out sister. there with very, very long lists like yours. She was held at gunpoint by her boyfriend, who threatened to kill her and himself. She was thrown down on the floor and had a gun put to her back of her head. She was walked in a, after a business lunch... My own sister walked down a corridor, and the man said, right in here behind her. Of course she walked in the room. He put the door closed behind her and went right at her. I can't. My own sister. We had no idea because we don't talk. So I'm glad to tell the story because not talking didn't work, did it? No, it changed nothing. So fine, I'm happy to talk. So there, yeah, that's how we change things. We change the culture of sexual violence by talking. Why don't you, in in your own words, tell the story? So this is in the 90s. This is a time when, even though you disagree with me, Donald Trump is like a Falstaff character in New York. He's like a Shakespearean character. He's everywhere, up and down the streets, and people go up to him, and he was, this is going to sound outrageous, he was interested in other people. He actually would engage in a conversation. Hi, how are you doing? You know, it was like totally different than he is now. And smiling. Uh, glad to see people, uh, shaking hands. This is the time I had a little TV show on the network started by number Roger, 14. Roger Ailes, Mr. Ro- the late Roger Ailes. The late fat Roger <laughs> Ailes. He started a network for NBC called America's Talking, which is now MSNBC. Yes. So 
<clears throat> I got off work. It was a live show every day, an ASCII gene show. We just put the problems on the air. It was great, extremely entertaining. So that ran from 4 to 5. So I got in the car and drove across the George Washington Bridge because I needed to buy something. I don't remember what it is. And I went. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Bergdorf, so it had to be around 6.30 towards 7. And I didn't find, I don't remember what I was looking for. I didn't find it. I was probably walking out to go to Barney's, right? Is that what we, you know, if you can't find it at Bergdorf, you go, from you go to Barney's. Fifth Avenue <laughs> over, to, yeah. over to Madison. Madison. So I'm walking out, and as I'm walking out, it's a 58th Street entrance, and Donald Trump is on the other side of the door, and he put his hand up to say, stop, you know, a stop motion. And I stopped, and he came through the door, and he said, hey, you're that advice lady. And I said, hey, you're that real estate mogul. I couldn't believe he recognized me. I was, like, thrilled. It was, like, wonderful. He said, come advise me. I said, oh, what for? He said, I'm looking for a gift. I said, for who? He said, a girl. And the reporter in you is like, ooh, adventure. This will be interesting. Oh, the reporter in me was just clapping (laughs) like this. And she was laughing, and I was smiling, and I was flirting my brains out like, you know, this is going to be great. We walked towards the handbags. I suggest the handbags. He's having nothing to do with the handbags. So at the time, the hats were mixed in with the handbags right there. Now, they've changed it. they got the hats someplace else now. But I said, a hat. And he went right for a fur hat, which really turned my stomach because I'm like, and I said out loud, a woman doesn't want to wear a dead animal on her head. But, as you know, <laughs> if you look at the pictures of him skiing in Aspen. Is he wearing a fur coat? Ivana is wearing a fur hat. Oh. And Marla Maples, they confronted each other on the slopes. It is an incredible picture. The two women fighting. These are the days. Fighting over Donald Trump. Both wearing the same fur hat, except one's in red and the other is in, I can't remember. Okay, so he liked the fur hat, so he's petting it. Mm-hmm. So I said, how old is she? And he said, how old are you? And I said, 52. And he said, you're so old. And shortly after that, or immediately, I'm not sure, he said lingerie. Or he could have said underwear. Or he could have said panties. He could have said whatever. I got the idea. Were you on notice when that happened? No. I thought it was getting better and better. Okay. Are you kidding? And at this point. Wouldn't you have thought, oh, okay, lingerie, of course. I mean. Handbag, no. Hat, no. Lingerie, made sense. Mm, No, I I understand. It's definitely like part of the show that's happening now in Bergdorf's. Yeah, because I'm thinking how I'm going to tell this at dinner. Exactly. 
I used to be a writer at Saturday Night Live, so this... Well, we're going to talk about that, too. Oh, and you well, actually worked alongside Al Franken, so yeah. we're going to get there as well. So you go up so, to lingerie. I'm tickled as we rode up the escalator. We didn't take the elevator. We rode the escalator so he can look around all the floors, right? And we get to the floor that it's on, and I can't remember if it's the same floor it's on now or not. So we walk down, and the lingerie is at the end of the building, and... I don't see very many people. I'm clocking it, but I'm not realizing what I'm seeing. I'm just aware that there's no shoppers up here. I'm just aware, as you would be aware in Bergdorf, of what's going on. And I think we went past Cruiseware or something, evening, something. We get to the lingerie department, and there's nobody there. Well, and it does sound like it's close to closing, too. Yes. And, you know, it may have been an evening that just it wasn't happening. But happen. still, there should have been an yeah. attendant there. It's Yeah. Okay. Very unusual. Bergdorf's is the greatest, coziest, most wonderful department store in the world. The attendants will get you anything you want. If you need one shoe to go with this outfit that you're trying on, she will run down or have her assistant run down to go get the shoe. Anyway, so there was nobody there. There were two or three boxes on the left. There was a counter to the left. And there was a filmy sort of a pile there, and he picked it up. It turned out to be a bodysuit that mm-hmm. you could see through. And he held it up. And then he held it towards me. He said, go try this on. I thought, oh, my God, this is just great. I said, you try it on. He said, no. It looks like it fits you. You're in shape. This looks like it fits you. I said, it goes with your eyes. You put it on. Because I think this is now the funniest thing I could ever conceive of. Because my idea is to make him put it on over his pants, mm-hmm. right? I'm actually going to make Donald Trump put the see-through bodysuit on over his pants. He motioned towards the dressing room, which was weirdly open, you know. So he goes like this, the after-you-madam gesture, and I am laughing as I walk in. The minute that door closed, boom, he threw me up against the wall and put his lips against mine. Now, it was pretty shocking. I'm like, what the hell? But my reaction was to laugh. Why? Well, laughter for two reasons. Number one, it's my natural defense. Two, it was actually funny that I'm going to try to make him put this on. He pushes me up against the wall and bangs my head, which if I look at it as comedy, it's I can handle it. If I look at it, it's about to be tragic. I don't know what I would have done. And uh, three, I have found in the past that if you laugh, when a man is trying to kiss you, it will kill the eroticism, and it's a good way to get him to just back off. can't laugh at a man, you know, and have it. Anyway, didn't work. And he pushed me up against the wall again and put his shoulder into my chest. And he's rather large, which I was, at the time, almost as tall as he was. I was wearing very sturdy, patent leather, almost platform heels or four inches. So I was up there. I was about six, one and a half. So the struggle started I, because I'm only wearing the coat dress and a very thick pair of tights underneath it. And his hand went in open the coat. He didn't need to open or unbutton anything. His hand can get right in there. And he pulled down my tights. I, then I realized this was, I don't know if I was laughing at this time. I don't remember. I do think I hit him several times with my purse. I, I don't think I ever dropped my purse because you know how I know that? Because I was outside on the street and I still had it in my hand. So 
Um, I must have hit him like that. Anyway, I stomped. I got a knee up. He did manage briefly to put his hand down between my legs. And you know how horrible it feels to have fingers around your private area? It's just, it, feels, it just feels horrible. First of all, it hurts with somebody pushing fingers and doing this stuff and then, and then very briefly inserted his penis. Very briefly. And that's when I'm a competitive athlete and I got my knee up and I got out. And luckily I had my purse and I don't remember pulling up my tights. I just, uh, rem and I don't remember if I went down the escalator or the elevator. I can never find the elevator in Bergdorf's, can you? No. So I think I went down the escalator and out and onto Fifth Avenue. And when I called my friend, the oddest part of this is she had to tell me to stop laughing. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm already in the brain of this is a hilarious story. Wait until I tell my friends. I'm not even going to wait for dinner. I'm going to call her right now. Oh, my God, listen to what happened. You know, not crying, laughing. You know, I had this thing in my so there. Thank you for sharing that. That's really awful. And I'm really sorry that that happened to you. Hmm. And if you don't mind me asking, when you were struggling to get free, was he saying anything to you? No, I mean, no words. Oh, I don't remember, actually. And you just were focused on getting away. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the whole this is the funniest thing that's ever happened to me in my life scenario was gone. Now my thing was to get out. The thing that concerns me now, here's the thing, and you can help me. Did he think, because I flirted with him, and we're talking about lingerie, and I'm telling him to put it on, and he's telling me to put it on. No, that I that said, was somehow permission, that you were yes. giving him permission? I don't think that matters. You didn't give him permission. No, no, I didn't. But could, could a man think that? I'm sure many men think that, but that's the important distinction here, is that that is not permission. That does not count for permission. No. It was very clear that that was non-consensual. Right. Um, you did not want to try that bodysuit on. No. Gee, oh, Lord. No, that would be like the last thing. And No. And I made it clear, I think, if I hit him in the head. Anyway, I was pushing. I was pushing away and stomping my feet to get out. So I, I try to think to this day why he would do that to me. Did I, did I look so vulnerable? What was it? You know? I, I think that that is something that also came across really strongly in your memoir is that it is men in power mm. that assert that power in very dangerous, often illegal ways that really destroy women's lives. This happened 24 years ago. Why now? Why did you want to tell the story now? Well... The day I left on the road trip to find out, to ask women in towns named after women, what do we need men for? The very day I got in the car and drove away, um, Megan Toohey and Jody Kantner exploded the Harvey Weinstein bombshell on the front page of the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And the surge of Me Too stories started. So as I drove across the country, I was pulling over just to read the Me Too tweets. I mean, it was... It was flooding over all of us. I'm sure you had the same reaction. You can't help but remember what happened to you when you see all these women standing up for the first time. It was so, it was so thrilling. I wasn't thinking about myself. I was just like, right on, sister. I hadn't thought of, you know, 
oh, they did it, I'm going to do it. I didn't think about it. However, what happened is that changed the letters coming into the Ask Eugene column. And so women were writing to me, should I report my son-in-law to the police? Should I report my husband? Here, this is the second time he's beaten me. My boss has been grabbing my breasts. And so I'm like, don't put up with that. You call the police. You go to the state commission right now and harassment. You know, Can I'm a big phony. <laughs> so because I wasn't doing it. But, any I, of it. but I think also from where you sit, you know, receiving these letters, also mm. being someone that has had very difficult experiences with men mm. through your life. It's so clear that women are so often terrorized by men in so many different scenarios and I think we take for granted or at least really try to just make the best of bad mm-hmm. situations, you know, almost expecting that we are going to be met with difficulties or added effort to try and just avoid a boss that's constantly leering at you or making some kind of inappropriate remarks. I think that kind of abuse comes in so many subtle deliveries and often not so subtle deliveries. Something that I found very difficult in your book is that you have experienced abuse from a really young age. Mm. And I, I don't think it was that unusual. It, to I, me, uh, I, don't, I think I don't, women, th- I don't think it was unusual either. Yeah. I'm wondering what I'd like you to ex- sort of share, if you can, is do you think that that string of events, that history that you have, that you have beautifully documented in this book, do you think that it put you in a different state of mind in that dressing room that day? Hmm. Hmm. Do you think that your reaction to laugh and to try and turn this into an entertaining opportunity or an opportunity to get a great story or to have a, have a great story to tell at the dinner party you were going to that night. Do you think that because of what has happened to you, you know, or had happened to you when you were a younger woman, that it's somehow made it hard to feel it? Well, I'm a chin up. Get on with it, girl. The reason why I'm happy today is because I don't dwell on this stuff. And so I think you're right. I must have been pulling on that history of where I'm like, get up, get up, E.G., what are you doing there? Get up, get out there, come on, get that knee up. Yeah, and just go on. That was how, it's a great way to deal with things if you have the sort of temperament I have. It doesn't work for many women, but it works for me to get, but it doesn't work for females as a culture. It did not work, I'm here to say. Being quiet and keeping your chin up is not the way to do it. The way to do it is to shout your brains out. (laughs) That's what you do, and you tell everybody. All the stories that you tell are are difficult in different ways, but one in particular that really was hard to read um, Mm. is about the camp counselor. and That had more of an effect on me than any other, way more than... uh, the president, way more, because I think of that almost every day. I don't blame you, and I think Uh. that the thing that resonated for me in in that part of the book or that essay was that you felt guilty because you didn't speak Mm. up, and then later, years later, when you saw that he had been Mm. arrested, Mm. you thought that maybe Mm. you could have prevented some other young girls from having to go through what you went through. 
who knows how many young girls I could have saved. I think the most chilling thing about the excerpt from your book in New York Magazine is that it felt differently reading the book and then also seeing that Mm. last line Mm. in the essay. Would you mind sharing what the last line of of the essay was? Well, after uh, the episode in Bergdorf's, I never had sex again. But I think (laughs) it wasn't because of him. I think it was I just didn't have the luck to meet that person that would cause me to be desirous again. I think maybe in that dressing room, my desire for desire was killed. But I think if I had met somebody, had the good luck to meet somebody, I think I would have been revived again. I think the desire would have boiled up again. I just think I've been unlucky. Now, who knows? Maybe I'll walk out here on 26th Street and boom. This seems like a really important time for you in your career, in your life. And nothing would make me happier than if you encountered someone that you just loved spending time with. Wouldn't that be great? That would be, I mean, if it would be great for you, I think that it, then that's what I want for you. Let's talk quickly about Jane Mayer's story about Al Franken in The New Yorker. You actually wrote for Saturday Night Live at the same time that Al Franken was there as a writer Mm. and an actor as well. And you actually said that you thought he was the least pervy person you'd ever met. Right. It was so unfair. I was so happy to see Jane Mayer step up and actually investigate the stories that were out there about And they were flimsy. She got a lot of pushback about it, though. I don't care. You go, Jane. Really. (laughs) She just, and you know, a lot of women had sent me messages and say, just because he wasn't ill behaved with you, Eugene, doesn't mean he wasn't with us. But I just can't imagine. He loves his wife. He is a comic. Comedy is a different world. So I just love that Jane Merritt did it. Just love it. One other thing I wanted to talk about, and it might even seem a little bit disparate from everything else we've been discussing today, but. I love so much how in the book also you go into such specificity and such detail about some of the outfits that you've worn and that you've loved over oh, yeah. over the years. What role do you think fashion has, has played in your life? There seems to be a really strong sense of meaning to those things that you've worn. I decide who I am that day, and then I put on that outfit. My clothes are such a part, as they are of every human on earth, to let the world know what you're thinking that day, how you're feeling that day. It's hard to put into words because I'm always flummoxed that fashion writers can talk about clothes in that emotional way. And I told you, you you have that capability. I don't. They just help me describe to the world who I am today because tomorrow I'm going to be another I'm going to be in another mood, right? Who are you today because you're wearing a red, oversized mechanics jumpsuit? Right. I'm all serious today. No makeup, no earrings, just I'm just work. I'm coming in for a big interview and this is we're going to we're going to get down, we're going to really talk and We're going to so, get under the hood. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, that was terrible. We're getting under the hood. This uh, yeah. is it. And they're not even dickies. I mean, they're red tops, so No, but, it's pretty legit. So that's my mood today. That's my serious go to work. This is a big, big interview. Eugene Carroll, it is such a pleasure to have you on Unstyled today. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us and just creating a really safe space for other people to share their stories too. And you have changed my life. Thank you very much. 
hope you're inspired after hearing E. Jean's story. For even more Unstyled Extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbaric. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head over to refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for the exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced by Rebecca Easley and Jay Brunson, with production assistance by Kate Spencer. Unstyled was edited by Priscilla Mena and Anna Costanza, and our writer is Kelsey Miller. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruest at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with late-night host and producer Samantha B. on laughing through work and life. We'll see you then. We'll see you then.